Welcome to UK Health Radio. You are listening to the Speech and Language Therapy Show hosted by Shamina Rabi, a consultant speech and language therapist and founder of Unlocking Language, an award-winning independent practice that provides speech and language therapy to both adults and children. She is dedicated to raising awareness about speech, language, communication and swallowing difficulties and empowering those who have them. So today on the show, we've got three fantastic speech and language therapists who work with paediatric feeding, swallowing, oromotor difficulties um, in the area of um, children aged 0 to 18. Uh, we've got Alana Wager with us, Sarah Watkins-Baker and Mira Mehta. Hi guys. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having us. It's very exciting because I know you've got some great news. You're all involved in something that's being launched over the next few weeks to do with paediatric feeding difficulties, paediatric dysphagia. Yeah, absolutely. So we are launching the London Dysphagia Centre on Swallow Awareness Day. So it's going to be March 18th, 2020. So coming up soon. So it's been a progress in work for quite a while now. So I think we're all really excited to see it begin. Swallow Awareness Day, what, what's that? Yeah, so Swallow Awareness Day is a day that is specifically dedicated to raising awareness about individuals who experience dysphagia, so swallow difficulties, um, and that's going to be the primary focus of what we're chatting about today. So before we get into the theory of what is dysphagia yeah. and what the centre is going to be offering, yeah. um, it'll be great to um, have a bit more information about each of you, um, yeah. sort of your journey into speech therapy and your journey, I suppose, into the world of dysphagia. Sure, sure. So, um, so, so we've got Alana now speaking. Yes, yes. Um, so for me, dysphagia has been a big love of mine really since the beginning. So started training um, in speech and language therapy, what well, seems like forever ago, but wasn't. Um, so I completed my bachelor's degree in 2016 back in the US and then a master's degree in 2018. Um, and dysphagia has kind of been a real bulk of my caseload and my my love ever since then. Um, so I was fortunate to have some really great placements um, where I was allowed to learn and experience a lot about pediatric dysphagia in inpatient and outpatient um, settings both neonatal and up through up through the lifespan really into into geriatric populations so dysphagia has always been something I've really loved I think that it's an area in our field that is still so sort of mm. under delivered yeah, um, in terms of clinical availability mm. and I think the other reason I love it too is because I, it's so wonderful to be able to provide support and knowledge to what feels like a very scary area for a lot of families um, not that communication difficulties themselves aren't aren't frightening, mm-hmm. but I think when things get into sort of the medical realm, there's an added urgency for support. So, yeah, I've been hooked ever since. I love I love pediatrician support. And I always find the reaction quite funny when um, you know you tell professionals, um, consultants, families that we work with babies as young as two weeks or three weeks. Absolutely. Yeah, feeding difficulties, the real Absolutely. neonates. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean. 
swallowing is a reflex that develops in utero. So in terms of neurological functions, it's one of the first things that we develop. Mm. Um, and I think also there's actually been talk over the years, especially in the United States, about changing the name of our profession to speech language and swallow therapists. Very long though. Yeah, 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 I know, as if it's not long enough already. Um, because yeah, we are, I think that's also a great point. That's something that people might not know is that in terms of interprofessional collaboration, whose job it is to address swallow difficulties, um, that's a speech and language therapist's role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so of course with ENT and gastro collaboratively, but that is definitely within our area of practice. Great, okay, excellent. And so Mira, tell us a little bit about you. Yes, so um, hi everyone, I'm Mira, a speech and language therapist, um, and I have been qualified for six years now, um, and I have um, a lot of interest in orofacial, um, facial muscles, orofacial myology, um, and totals. So all to do with the muscles of your face, the muscles of your tongue, mm -hmm. the muscles of your mouth, um, and also um, looking more into thumb sucking. So that's something that's really big. Um, we get a lot of children that do thumb suck or do have dummies that they just can't give up on. Um, and that's something that sometimes parents find a little bit more difficult. So um, I have an interest and a growing interest in this, and this is something that I'm really looking forward to doing and working on as well and I mean we've had parents uh, you know email um, asking for um, tips and strategies on mm -hmm. how do I get my child to to quit the dummy they've got mm -hmm. a three-year-old yeah. and they've just really sort of got addicted right. to it and it, you know it's hard being a parent let's face it so yeah, you know, sure. sometimes you just you just need to do what yeah, you can um, exactly. but it'll be great to get some some top strategies from you and I'm sure we could do another whole podcast on um, just Absolutely. just um, uh, thumb sucking yeah. and um uh, um, and using the dummy and and how did you go from uh, sort of you know speech therapist generalist to kind of working with or remote and having an interest in what's yeah. happening around the mouth and the pharynx and um so i have family um that um are dentists and specializing in sleep apnea mm -hmm. and they said oh you're a speech and language therapist why don't you look at orofacial myology as a course um, so over my summer holidays, I decided to make my trip to Sydney, um, or yeah, it was Sydney, and um, do the course on orofacial myology. Um, and the course was great. And the best thing is, there's not a lot of speech and language therapists who also do orofacial myology in the UK. So right. we would be one of the first that can offer this service. So you're an accredited therapist, and th there's just a handful in yeah. the UK. Yeah, not very many. So it's something that's still up and coming, um, and that we're trying to get people more aware of as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Great. Too funny, Mira. My dad is a dentist too. And my grandpa. Oh, Maybe there's a theme here with our <laughs> dental colleagues. <laughs> And then we've got Sarah, who's back with us again, who yes. did a fantastic podcast uh, the other day with myself around um, sensory feeding difficulties um, in children with autism. Yeah, we did. Um, so yeah, I'm Sarah. I also graduated with um, a bachelor's degree in speech and language pathology in 2016. Um, and I think my kind of interest and love for dysphagia started... It started at uni, but it kind of really grew when I went into my first role um, after I graduated, where I was based in a hospital, and I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to work with both paediatric and adult patients with dysphagia. 
um, and that included um, neonates, which I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess coming to the UK, I've been really lucky to have the opportunity to continue working with um, the paediatric dysphagia population and kind of expand and grow my knowledge. Um, and yeah, and then I recently, last year, did the SOS um, feeding approach course. Um, so that's working with uh, children who are classified as picky eaters or problem feeders and right. is linked to, you know, sensory aversions around food. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been really, really good to uh, learn about that and start uh, feeding therapy around that area. Mm. So it sounds really exciting. So with a combination of your skill set, um, you know, sort of... Um, is born the London um, Dysphagia Centre. Yeah. So, so, so tell us about it. What, why do we need this in London? What, what's it going to do? Who can access it? How, will we, how can people be referred? Yeah, so, so I think first of all, you know, our service came about really identifying gaps in the continuum of care for dysphagia mm -hmm. and also kind of, you know, recognising that the reality is that with very long wait lists for public services, sometimes parents don't want to or can't um, wait until they're given an appointment with a specialist within their local NHS trust. So the dysphagia waiting lists are quite good, though. Um, they are uh, in the NHS, especially for assessment. I think they yes. can get to them yes. within a very quick time frame. Yes, absolutely. Is it more sort of the the therapy side of Definitely. things? Definitely, it's that therapeutic approach. And then I think as well, you know, something that's great is to be able to offer second opinions too. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. it's best practice that all of us typically want a second opinion when it comes to anything with ourselves or definitely with with our children so um so that was really I think kind of like our, our basis in terms of in terms of a business model and then I think from a logistical perspective we just really enjoy having that flexibility of being able to offer parent trainings and collaborative workshops where parents can come in and learn strategies directly from us um things of those nature so Sarah do you want to talk about the referral yeah so the referral process we've kind of um I think where we started was trying to identify local um, GPs and ENTs and dietitians um, and so on in the area that we can kind of create a referral pathway through um, and kind of put ourselves out there and be yeah. like, here we are, we're ready for referrals, sure. <laughs> refer to us. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what we've been doing and how we've been kind of creating this pathway for... Yeah. Um, hopefully people will refer to us. Yeah, absolutely. Great. People can self-refer, I'll yeah. just add, okay. through our website. So okay. if you're concerned about your child's feeding, mm -hmm. um, you can self-refer through our website. Okay. So, Alana, can you give an example of um, you know, a, neonatal that, a neonate that might come to clinic and then that would need your, your expertise and the yeah. complexity? Because you do deal with quite fragile and medical yes. um, little ones, don't you? Yeah, yes, sure. What sort, so, of what, what sort of symptoms would they be displaying? How would somebody know that actually they need a speech and language therapist? Great question. So typically with our neonates, we see the issues in terms of weight gain and also around observable behaviors in their feeding patterns. So for example, we might see a child who is experiencing failure to thrive, so they've got that low weight that's difficult to get up. Um, they might have feeds that are too lengthy. So for a neonate, any feed that lasts longer than 30 minutes is not an efficient feed. The child's then burning more calories than they're taking in. So that's a major red flag. 
Um, we think about other typical concerns for dysphagia in this population being things like red face after after eating or drinking, um, for example, anterior loss, so when we can see loss of, of saliva or of milk from the front of the mouth during a feed. And I mean, would we see that though with a baby that's sort of six months or under? Yeah, sure we would. I think okay. what I usually tell parents, you know, is use your judgment. If something feels, especially when it comes to, like you mentioned, something that, those, those difficult behaviors, right, where sometimes they're normal and then sometimes they can be a yeah. symptomatic of, of an underlying issue. Mm -hmm. And I find that usually the parents are always the ones with that awesome instinct that can kind of tick off to, like, for example, okay, I feel like this is more loss of milk from the front of the mouth than I was seeing with my first child or that I feel like is normal. Okay. Um, other concerns would obviously be coughing or choking while consuming um, milk and I'm trying to think, Sarah. And what does that mean with the coughing and choking? So our listeners know, well, what does that actually mean when, when the baby or the child or toddler is yeah. coughing when they're drinking? Yeah, so when we see or hear coughing when a child is consuming food or drink, that is a sign to us of airway compromise. Mm -hmm. And so basically what that means is that a foreign body, whether it's food or drink, is entering into the airway. So we have those two parallel tubes, one leading to the stomach, the esophagus, and the other, the trachea, leading to the lungs. And it's sort of this awesome automatic process that our brains have of helping us self-protect our airways. So when we swallow, our epiglottis flops down over the top of the trachea and keeps us safe from food and drink entering the lungs. Um, but for children who are experiencing a neurological insult uh, of any kind, so maybe that is a, pre a previous injury like cerebral palsy or a traumatic brain injury, a developmental disability or a genetic condition, mm -hmm. sometimes those neurological reflexes aren't always intact. Yeah. And then we see airway compromise. Okay. So that's why that's a big concern for us. And what would you do in that situation? What would parents expect? How do you treat the child, or the, the baby? Sure, yeah. So the first thing that we would do is we would do a swallow assessment. Um, so we always try and use a, the least invasive technique that is necessary for the child, right? So when our babies come in, we do a bedside, a clinical swallow eval, which is we basically observe them consume a bottle, okay. consume a meal if they're of that age. And if we see signs or symptoms that indicate that airway compromise may be present, then we would make a referral always for an instrumental swallow evaluation. And that'll give us some more information specifically about what's going on and would inform our recommendations for therapy. Mum and dad have come in to see you. They've yeah. got a um, you know, a, a 12 week old yeah. um, who is not um, feeding or latching onto the breast um, yeah. that well. Um, the neonate has got swallowing difficulties. What do you do then as a speech therapist? Once you've done the assessment, yeah. what can you do for treatment? So there's a variety of things we can do for treatment. So first of all, let's give an example of an oral feeder. So a child that is consuming food orally that doesn't have a, f a feeding tube in place. If that's the case, what we really want to do is we want to use cue-based feeding techniques and also a lot of behavioral modifications. So cue-based is? So cue-based would be things like basically just really paying attention to the child's physical movements and reactions to the feed. And based on that, trying things like positioning them in different ways. So for example, a midline position or an upright position, right? If we're getting some symptoms like that the child might be experiencing reflux after a feed. 
Um, another common technique we use in neonates is um, we tend to use different bottles and different nipple heads for the bottle. And what that allows us to do is it really allows us to control the flow rate of the milk. Okay. And then based on that, we often find that by using an appropriate flow rate, most children are able to protect their airways at least much more efficiently than they would be able to if they were, for example, using a standard size, a standard nipple. Okay. And those are just some examples, generic examples. And, and how long would treatment take? Would it be a couple of sessions or do they need to come in regularly to see you? What, what does the program sort of look like? Yeah, so it really does depend. I know no one likes to hear this answer. It really does <laughs> depend on every child, right? But I think typically... It is bespoke, I do agree. I think it, speech it therapy really it is, is It really is, especially with feeding. So, mm. I mean, we can have kids that come in and let's say, for example, if it is an issue where like we can really identify and isolate that it is a flow rate issue, right? Mm -hmm. With like the bottle and the nipple that that child is using. Then in that, in that session, we would trial a bunch of different ones. We'd okay. find the one that seems to work the best for the child. Mm -hmm. And then we would follow up, right? So follow up on a weekly basis. And if there's no concerns from a health, a chest health or a weight gain perspective, that child could be discharged from our caseload or could put on a, on a re-eval only. Okay. Sort of, sort of therapy approach, and that'd be really different than, like, for example, some of the patients we see for sensory feeding, where it's much more sort of consistent and, and regulated. And you're working, sort of, Sarah, with, with um, you know, all the people that are involved with that child, so school and home, um, you know, after school club, so that everyone can support that child with sensory yeah, uh, feeding difficulties. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, we always eat throughout the day. So the child's going to yeah. eat at home. They're going to eat at school. They're going to eat at afternoon club. So we need to make sure that each person that's with them in that environment is able to support them in the right ways. Mm. Um, so like, you know, you said having correct positioning or yep. um, having correct consistencies or food that the child can tolerate. Um, and then, you know, in a, in a, if there's a sensory aversion, being able to support them using strategies that we can provide them with. Mm. And how early on can you detect um, sensory feeding difficulties in a child or a toddler? Well, that's something we were actually talking about yeah. the other day. Yeah. Uh, for example, like neonates that have been tube fed yeah. um, or neonates with reflux that can yeah. lead to sensory aversions later on in life. Mm, so that it can start fairly early. Yeah. Um, and that's why we like to see those as young as possible Absolutely. because to try prevent those sensory aversions. Exactly like with the case you saw the other day about yeah. getting sensory stimulation while the child is being tube fed so that they're able to hopefully tolerate uh, foods and textures later on if they do start um, eating orally. Absolutely. And can you give us an example of a um, you know, child that you've worked with, kind of from assessment to, to maybe sort of end of therapy, how many sessions it's taken or the, the outcome of how it's been? Mm. Yeah, sure. So um, if I think of, let me think of a child quickly. Uh, so I had a child in a school that um, was only eating, had got stuck on pureed foods, mm. and the specific pureed food that he liked was Cerelac. How old was the child? He was eight years old, yeah. Okay. He actually knows this guy. Okay, so eight um, years he just eats Cerelac yeah. um, <coughs> yeah. for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yeah. Or? <laughs> and what kinds of things would the parents see, Sarah, like if he, if he was presented with anything else? 
Uh, he would just refuse to eat it, pull a face, maybe push it away, not okay. look at it. Okay. Um, so very difficult to try and get him to eat anything else. So um, went in for to the school for an assessment, um, and this is like we said earlier, mm -hmm. observing the child eat what they would normally eat. Yeah. Um, and then seeing if they have the right skills for um, his age. So at you know eight years old, we expect him to have all the right oral motor skills for um, eating and swallowing. So like chewing um, and yeah, exactly. being able to put <coughs> your lips around the spoon yeah. and take it off the spoon. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then also kind of seeing how he responds to other foods that he hasn't tried before. Mm. Um, so that was a typical, so mostly observation, but then a little, little bit of playing around with what would happen, you know, if we had to put some, what was it, Something lasagna or yeah. spaghetti in front of him and what he would do. Yeah. Um, and then from that, I could kind of create a program specific for that child. Um, and it was basically a food exploration program that we developed and put mm. together for the TA to help us. Um, TA is the teaching, teaching assistant. assistant, sorry, to run on a regular basis. Um, and that was just basically <coughs> learning about food, learning about the different textures, the consistencies, the properties of the food. So what does it look like? What does it smell like? Uh, what does it taste like? So, so how would this work practically? So does mm. the teaching assistant put the food there and then they talk about it like it's like yeah. they play with it? So or? we use a graded approach. So the first very first step is that the food will tolerate, I mean the child, the child will tolerate the food in the room. So some children have very yeah. strong aversions mm -hmm. and if they see a food, they will immediately turn mm -hmm. away or have a meltdown. They can't even look at it. Yeah. So, and then you slowly build it up so they'll tolerate it on their plate. Then they'll tolerate So how do you build it up? How, how do you So get... through exploring and basically playing with food, which obviously mm -hmm. is sometimes a little bit... People are like, oh, but we always taught not to play with our food. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the best way children learn through play. Right. So that's the best way for the children to learn about food and mm. to kind of say, hey, I'm not scared of this. Yeah. Definitely. And then we work it up to eventually touching it, to holding it, to changing it, and then smelling it, and then mm. hopefully eating and swallowing it. And how, how long did it take for this child to... Um, he was... I'm trying to think. It, within our first session, so yeah. obviously it's very dependent on the specific on the child, child. Yeah. but he was an A plus student and he was ready to go from the first session. And what's the diagnosis um, of this child? Autism. Okay. Yeah. So he, within the first session, he tried, I think, two foods, um, which he actually tasted, which was great for the first session. Obviously, mm. other children take much longer to move up those steps. Um, so for him, it was fairly quick I would say yeah what I thought was really interesting because I was there when you did the assessment was even though he had his serolac in front of him um, you still had a plate of food that everyone else was eating yeah. everyone else on the table was eating it even though he didn't touch it in the middle of his <coughs> meal you started talking to him about it and playing with the spaghetti and um, mm. he was showing interest in it mm. so I thought that that was quite nice yeah. when you talk about your graded system, he was able to tolerate yeah. it straight away. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that is something for parents is even if your child only eats a specific food, mm -hmm. still present them with the food that you have on the table that yeah. you, that you right. eat. Give them that choice. Yeah. Because you can still talk about it and you mm -hmm. can still... Yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. 
interact with it and hopefully the child will show interest even if they don't don't want to eat it and that's really interesting from a sensory perspective too because I think we think about like learning through exposure right Mm -hmm. and like I've had a lot of parents tell me for example like with trying different foods like okay you know this is what's for dinner but but my son won't eat this so I'm going to give him you know his pasta with with butter and salt and although we totally get that and that does make sense right if if you've had an experience where they've rejected all other foods you know you're not going to present something that's going to be rejected yeah, because but, your primary concern is I want my child to absolutely, eat. absolutely get their nutrition. Absolutely, but it's interesting because, like, from another from another perspective, right? We wouldn't say, okay, for example, this child has a limited amount of vocabulary, so I'm not going to use this certain word around them, or I'm not going to expose them to other things that they might not understand yet. Mm-hmm. But from a food perspective, right? Often we kind of and then and then what we're doing is we're really reinforcing like those limitations and those stringent rules and behaviors around food for the child. Exactly. But how can we implement that as working parents? So, you know, I, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old and I just want them to eat their food because that, that, that whole one hour is survival mode. Let's right. just get them eating and drinking. Yeah. So then yeah. to start thinking, well, I need to yeah. show them this and I need to get them to... Sure. How, how can we fit that into normal routine mm. as parents, whether we work or not? Because, it you know, we have so many challenges so as parents. A great yeah. way to do food exploration and learning about food is food preparation. So you're mm. going to be prepping dinner or you're going to mm-hmm. be prepping lunch. Yeah. And the best way you can get the is to get the child involved in that. Mm, so okay, let yeah, them that's a good idea. Up, let them, you know, mix the flour and the eggs or um, stir what it is in the pots or obviously super supervise. So- <laughs> or cut out the, you know, bread or cheese or great you know, anything, get them involved that's and talk idea. about what you know, like yeah. you say to parents with you know, language um, disorders, you know, talk to your child. Yeah, and sure. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing we're going to do here. Yeah, talk Absolutely. about what So expose, about expose your child yeah, exactly. to, sure. to different things. And you get a helper. I know. What is that you were saying? I remember um, when you were seeing this client, she said that they need to try it a certain number of times before mm. they reject it. Yeah. Oh, and this is for all children, typically developing children and not typically yeah. children. Science has shown that um, when you're introducing a new food, it needs to be presented at least 10 times before the child will accept that new food. Mm, so this really is on 10 different occasions. So not just sure. let me present it over and again now. It yeah. needs to be on 10 separate meals. You need to represent that food to them. That's how I feel about sushi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Mira, tell us about your role in the centre. So we've got, you know, the, the kind of like neonate complex... Um, medical fragile um, children with um, organic dysphagia that yep. Alana sort of sees and then we've got the sensory feeding and the SOS approach delivered by um, Sarah so what is your role here in the clinic? Um, so I have been like I said earlier I've been trained on orofacial myology um, and working with children kind of from three onwards um, but another thing that I'm also trained on is talk <coughs> which is an American um, speech and language therapy program um, that works on orofacial muscles, uh, your tongue muscles, um, and your speech as well. So it's how it's all linked together. Samira, so when you talk about talk tools, what do you mean um, that it works with oromotor skills, oromotor muscles? Sure. What actually are talk tools? Um, so talk tools, like I said, is an American program, um, and when I say works on oromotor, I meant. Um, working on your tongue lateralization, your tongue movement, your tongue strength, 
which is also or also could be linked with tongue ties yeah. um, and also your facial muscles and your lip closure so we get yeah. a lot of children that are coming in and parents yeah. think they're drooling we don't know how to stop them um, what could we do and talk tools is a really good tool to support that um, so we have a way to assess the children and see what their baseline is set yeah. some targets um, work jointly with the parents, which is really important because it's an exercise that needs to be done daily. Yeah. It's not something that can just be done once a week. Um, so we want to use talk tools as a holistic approach. Um, and it is important that um, your your therapists are trained on talk tools because there's different levels. Okay. So if you do have, or if you are referring your child to a um, talk tools therapist, um, it would be good to check the website as well to to see the levels and talk to us mm. works on speech feeding exactly. um and, and managing your saliva um exactly. and just developing and building the strength of those oromotor muscles exactly. oromotor skills yeah all those skills so, you mentioned are really important for feeding yeah yeah, absolutely. yeah. yeah. and um i've worked with a with talk tools i've worked with um a large number of kind of client base or with different diagnosis so i've, I've had a client that has had cerebral palsy mm-hmm. um i've had a few clients that have autism as a diagnosis so i can see with well. the um with cerebral palsy with down syndrome mm-hmm. you know yeah. the child naturally has got uh, you know, low tone, sure, uh, exactly. weak, weak muscles. But with a child with autism, mm-hmm. tone and muscle is normal. Yeah. So what's your role there then? So one of the things that Talk Tools does have or is equipped with is the apraxia kit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get a lot of parents coming in and saying, you know, we really want our child to start speaking or he has a few words or he has a few sounds, but we want that to develop mm-hmm. a, a little bit further. Or they want just sounds as or well. Or they just want sounds developed. So the apraxia kit works on the auditory, the kinesthetic and the kind of sensory feedback that you get. And so do lots of the other tools that the top tools have. So it's a whole base of flutes that we can use, which work on specific speech sounds, venation, and also learning how to um, fill up your air with, uh, yeah. fill up your lungs with air, because that's yeah. one of the that biggest things. The breath support is huge. Um, lip control. So we get a lot of children that aren't able to blow a bubble. Um, yeah. When you think about the lip formation that you're making when you blow a bubble, mm. children can't do it. So yeah. we teach them, and there's different ways to teach them how to blow bubbles as so well. So you're working so. on the non-verbal skills before we even want to start working on those verbal skills. Exactly. Um, excellent. Great. And so um, tell me more about the oromyofunctional therapy and the thumb sucking. What's the link here? Um, So like I said earlier, we get a lot of children that, or as a speech and language therapist working Mm. on speech, I get a lot of children that have delayed (coughs) speech sounds, or they may have a lisp. And I say, um, you know, your child is four or five. Is he still using a dummy? Um, and I've had a lot of parents saying, yeah, actually, you know, he is using a dummy. So at four or five, you're still yeah. getting children through the exactly. door that are, are dummies. Exactly. Sure. Um, so that's one of the biggest triggers. Your child is using a dummy. We need to help you um, to support your children to quit using the dummy. Sure. But as we know, it's hard. And it's hard, to, so it's hard. hard for parents mm-hmm. to just take the dummy away and let them let them carry on um, so that's one of the things we work on we work on um, supporting your children to stop using their dummy um, children that use their dummy also maybe thumb sucking yeah which is a really big thing yeah. um, or can you have children that just thumb suck as well that don't 
necessarily use a dummy or is there a name? Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So I think you can have a variation. You can have some children that do thumb sucking right. and dummy or some children that just do thumb Either. sucking. Mm. Um, the reason we get a lot of children thumb sucking is because firstly it starts in your womb. Um, that's something that I learned on the course. It's not, I wouldn't have ever thought of it. Um, children use it as a cooking That's interesting. So do all babies them. sort of suck on their thumbs when they're in the womb? Yeah, so thumb sucking begins in the womb and babies are genetically wired to suck for nutrition. So again, mm, you know, we're okay. talking about the swallow and they start swallowing yeah, absolutely. before That's birth. Um, sucking the thumb, for, so for, for especially for babies, is sure. a coping mechanism um, for comfort and for Definitely. wellness and for their anxiety as well. Right. And... Um, when they're separated from their parents. Sure. So maybe kind of the age three or four, you get children going into nursery school. Absolutely. Um, and as a comfort, they're using that as a, you know, they're, they're, they're so food, yeah. Yeah. And I think this makes so much sense too, because if we look at it from a perspective of what's the first soothing bonding mm. experience between mm. a mom and a baby, right? Mm. It's the feed. Yeah. So then it's yeah. no mystery why, like the dummy is the magic trick to, yeah. to a tantrum, to a bad day. To yeah. an exhausted toddler, right? Yeah. Um, and the same with thumb sucking too, because the thumb is really like an organic dummy that's yeah. attached to the body. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and I think that's the reason why like this is so hard is when it becomes yeah. that coping mechanism for yeah. your child that doesn't have the language yet to like articulate when they need when they need maybe support after mm-hmm. a tough day, for example, exactly. or can't even realize it yet. Mm-hmm. And um, another fun fact about thumb sucking, it's um, a, it triggers your happy hormones. So it's like you said, it's interesting. Also it's an endorphin thing. Interesting. Yeah. And so, and so what's uh, so you've got a child who's um you know who's who's sucked their thumb for four years. Mm-hmm. How are they going to appear when they come to clinic? Is their de- dentition any different? <laughs> so I should have mentioned earlier with um with children that are thumb sucking. Um, or dummies, or using dummies as well as, as say, three, four, even five, um, they may have been referred to us by dentists, yep. um, and that's because of their dental position, their, mm. their, their teeth aren't in the position that they should be at, sure. their, um, or their tongue position as well. So a lot of children that we get are mouth breathers. Yes. Um, when I say mouth yes. breathers, I mean their you know, at rest, our lips should be closed with our tongue tip at the top of our mouth. Mm-hmm. But when we get children that are mouth breathers, their lips are open um, sure. and their tongue is slightly sticking out in between their teeth. Yep. Um, so you can see that they're struggling to breathe as well. And yeah. that's they become a habit now because of it's having something in their yeah, mouth. Yeah, it's become yeah. a habit. It then is all inter- interlinked because you're thinking about their mouth position, you're thinking about the way they're breathing. Sure. If, they're, if you're struggling in what you're breathing, um, you're also going to struggling. You're also going to struggle with sleep. Yeah. If your sleep is affected, you're then going to struggle with kind of everyday self regulation, self regulation, yeah, um, and yeah. also speech, which is such a big one. So when it's we definitely. work on thumb sucking, we also then follow up with yeah. a speech program. So it impacts directly on speech, and does it impact on feeding? Yeah, it would. It would impact on feeding yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah, and um. What's the link with um, the Oromai functional therapy and um, tongue tie? Because is that right that you'll also be working with um, 
babies, yeah. toddlers yeah. who have tongue tie. Yeah. So we got a lot of children or um, in the past I've, se I've seen a lot of parents that have said, oh, I didn't even know my child had a tongue tie. Mm. Um, but again, your tongue strength is so important in latching on when, you know, during mm. breastfeeding. Definitely. And also thinking about the muscles of your cheek. When you yeah. are breastfeeding, um, you're trying to strengthen these, the muscles of your cheek. But if children have a tongue tie, they're not going to be able to strengthen these muscles. Um, so again, yeah. identifying whether children do have a tongue tie early on. And Alana, how could a mum, or, or you know, any of us, how, how could a mum um, start suspecting, oh, I wonder if my yeah. little one does have a okay. tongue tie? So, what so are the sort of signs? Tips. And again, it's different and it does depend depend on the child. But some, mm. some red flag signs are a baby that has a real difficult time latching mm -hmm. and also a baby that has a difficult time sustaining that latch okay. right so latching is hard we all we all yeah. know that like latching is hard for everyone mm. but it's when we see those babies that just they cannot sustain the latch like they get on and then they're and then they're slipping off within right? a few seconds within a minutes. few seconds okay. and it and it keeps happening and it happens consistently and so what is the tongue tie doing so what's happening in that instance is that the strength and the range of motion is limited mm -hmm. so the baby may be able to latch and to to, to, With the to grab on yeah sure yeah. and also they may depending on how severe the tongue tie is they may also be able to protrude and to and to cup the tongue enough to to establish a latch but it's just so laborsome and difficult for them mm -hmm. if if they're even able to sustain at all right mm -hmm. so that's when we see so that's probably i would say one of the biggest red flags is if we're seeing a latch that can be sustained uh, sorry can be initiated but but cannot be sustained the child is needing to relatch several several times mm -hmm. during a feed yeah. symptoms of that unfortunately would be extremely painful feeds for mom right mm -hmm. so um some some level of discomfort is normal with breastfeeding mm -hmm. but when it's getting to the point where like nipples are cracked and bleeding and really really painful i would definitely look into look into the presence of a tongue tie i would say those are two 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 of the big ones and and so if that is the case, then the um you know mum dad they can get in touch with a lactation nurse. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then I think it's consultants and, and some lactation nurses that can yeah deviate kept that can um, cut the tongue tie. Yeah, absolutely. So they use a procedure called a phrenectomy, mm -hmm. and so what they'll do is the tongue tie. If we think about what it actually is, it's that tiny little bit of skin that we all have under our under our tongue. tongue so yeah. actually don't love the term tongue tie because we all have <laughs> tied tongues, thankfully. Um, but it's just when it becomes a functional problem. So depending on the facility, they will either s snip it surgically mm -hmm. or some places use uh, laser ablation. Okay. So it's just typically a quick outpatient thing in and out. Um, and it's and it's repaired in a day. And what's your role then with with the tongue tie? Yeah, so primarily our role is in the early stages. So parents will come to to speech and language therapists and to to feeding therapists when they've got concerns, feeling like okay something isn't right here mm -hmm. uh, in terms of tongue tie being being quite suspicious. <clears throat> that something might be atypical and then we will assess and then based on our assessment we will refer as necessary to the ENT so the otolaryngologist who would ultimately perform the procedure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great okay so I've got some questions that I've been emailed over the last few months from parents. I'm great. Just gonna sort of come out with them okay, great. and anyone can respond. Um, <clears throat> 
Someone has actually asked, what are the top tips or strategies to Mira to help with thumb sucking? Mm. Um, so they've got a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, they have actually sent a picture, a, a photo in where the teeth are. So there's a gap between the upper teeth and the lower teeth. Okay. Um, what can they do to help reduce or really get rid okay, of the so thumb sucking? When, um, so you might be wondering if, firstly, if it's a habit um, and whether it's going to continue or if it's going to, you know, if you, you're going to be able sure. to stop it. Sure. Um, this is the thumb sucking. Yeah. Um, so a when I was taught about thumb sucking on the orofacial myology course, um, the clinician mentioned, or they they taught us and said it's like it's like a habit that you can't get rid of. So, for example, yeah. a, a bad habit or a habit that you want to quit. Sure. Um. So with thumb sucking, it's a program that where we work with the child, mm-hmm. um, and with the orthodontist as well yep. to stop them from their thumb sucking. Um. It's a program that would take about. It's a long-term program okay. uh, where we would see the child once every two to three weeks or it could be a little okay. bit longer depending on how they're coping with it. And we help them um, wean off their thumb sucking. So we have okay. different things like thumb guards that we can use. Okay. Um, mm. And another thing is a lot of children that do thumb suck um, have something that is their comfort so i've seen children sure. that have like a little blankie that they come with or a little yeah. teddy bear mm, yeah. so one of the things obviously i can't give you all the tips because one of the things that we would do is help them um kind of or, or remove that addiction and sure. that, that replace attachment it with, and then replace it with another positive behavior okay so rewards Sure. Also, kind of behavior management with the thumb sucking as well. One thing I'll say with that too that I think is really interesting is, and I can just even remember this not through any clinical experience, but just like anecdotally from school, um, it very quickly becomes quite a socially isolating thing for children, doesn't it? Like yeah, the thumb sucking. Yeah. It can be mm. a real a real cause for social isolation and, and for bullying, even amongst mm. young children. When you think about like some of the first insults that young children throw at each other, it's always calling the other child a baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's like one of the number one things that we equate to to mm. immature or baby-like behaviors, thumb mm. sucking. Yeah. Mm. Okay, um, so we've had um, a, a dad um, call in, uh, sorry, uh, send an email, sure. and um, he has a two-year-old um, who eats and drinks fine at home, but as soon as they're in a social setting, so if they're going out to um, a restaurant or if they've gone to someone's house, the child, the toddler has a meltdown and Ooh. just is not eating or drinking in social um, situations. They're concerned that there are social communication difficulties as well, sure. but what could they do to support um, you know, just to sort of help their little one um, to feel more comfortable in a social environment. Mm. So I think it's looking at the cues to eating that are used at home. So for example, who's feeding the child? Where are they eating? Um, what are they using to eat, you know, in terms of utensils? Mm. Um, is there something, you know, in the background while they're eating? So looking yep. at the environment and then kind of thinking, okay, well, what's different? at home and then for example the restaurant um, and sometimes it's things like just taking having um, a plain plate cup and spoon that they can use and if that's taking yeah. you with the restaurant to kind of use the same cues to eating maybe that will help I don't know sure. if you have any other 
Yeah, no, I would recommend that as well. And I think, too, one thing that's interesting from, like, an environmental perspective is thinking about those sort of behaviors around eating and what are we as the adults Mm. reinforcing. So I think just from, like, if we look at it from, like, a behavioral standpoint, one of the first and really only forms of control that children have over their own lives is that power of refusal, right? The power of no. I might not be able to make certain choices at two or three or four years old, Mm -hmm. but I can choose to not do this and not (laughs) do this, right? So I think that, you know, looking to it, the way we respond Mm -hmm. to that, because children, whether there's a social communication difficulty or not, I think it's definitely fair to say that children understand much more than we give them credit for, especially in terms of in terms of our behavior. Yeah, so in other words, it, it's quite possible that the child may have picked up that when they're outside of the home, there is a different expectation mm-hmm. on their feeding behavior. Mm-hmm. There might be a performance expectation, right? You're yeah. going to eat. We're at a restaurant. You need to eat mm-hmm. compared to at home. Mm-hmm. And also thinking about like, how do we rewrite that experience? If a child has had stressful and negative experiences eating outside the home previously for any reason, how are we going to rewrite that experience and change it and make it different so that the child now, you know, is thinking about this in a totally different light. And I think this is the cool thing. Mm -hmm. Like this is where parents can get creative, right? So maybe it's, it's ordering a meal and the child, depending on the age and depending on family preferences for table manners, right? But that the child can play with or explore or try something new. Or maybe the child gets to like go somewhere and order a dessert, right? Something they absolutely love and there's no pressure on them at all. And and you would say start off with that then. So if we have got this two-year-old, start off with ordering what they like. Absolutely. Rather than going yeah. for main meal and then... Absolutely, okay. right? And it sounds like such a simple suggestion, and that's because it is, but it works. If okay. We want to rewrite, like, mm-hmm. that experience for the child. Yeah. You know, so... And that is what you say about creating those positive experiences. Yeah. So, before six months, feeding and um, eating is all... It's very um, instinctive. Yeah, you know, absolutely. we've got those reflexes in place, and yeah. it's after six months it then becomes more of a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does. Children it? can very quickly develop these negative associations mm. with food and yeah. in certain environments. Um, <coughs> so it's about trying to create those positive associations and experiences for them. Definitely. Great. So I've had an email from somebody in Lebanon and um, they don't have access to speech and language therapy services. Okay. Now she had a baby that was born um, three months early. Okay. Um, so didn't really have the, the suck um, reflex. Yeah. Um, I mean, the baby is now sort of three or four months. Okay. Um, but in that instance, what could she have done and could... Could, do we have a role with a baby that is born premature? And what can we do to, to help sure, get that sure. suck, swallow reflex going? Do you know if this baby was on a tube feed? NHS. Yes, okay, NG. Yeah. Okay, great. So that would be what I would expect. So we definitely have a role with children who are not yet eating orally. And the reason for that is we want to be able to provide oral stimulation, even to non-oral feeders, 
um, right? So stimulation to and around the mouth mm -hmm. so that when children, our hope is always that when a feeding tube goes in, we want to think about the plan for how to take that tube out, yeah, right? Exactly. That's completely up to the discretion and the professional expertise yeah. of the medical team and the mm -hmm. doctor in that circumstance. That's not our call. <clears throat> but for therapeutic purposes, that's always what we're looking at that next step forward. So for any baby that is tube fed, it is great to be able to provide that oral, intraoral, so in the mouth and perioral, meaning around the mouth, stimulation for the purpose of avoiding, hopefully, any refusal or oral hypersensitivity in the path, in the future, excuse me, to, to oral feedings when they do eventually transition off the tube. So that's something that that mom absolutely could be doing. Um, again, it's really important that you do this under the under the expertise of your medical yeah, team and absolutely. under supervision um, to make sure that all of those precautions with respect to the child's medical issues are being mm. respected. Um, but that's definitely something we can do. Um, and we see a lot of children who are NPO, right, so are no by mouth and tube fed, develop real sensory mm. aversions. So whether it's behavioral refusal. Because they've not had enough absolutely. oral stimulation absolutely hyperactive gag reflex it's like it's such a foreign concept if you imagine it might be difficult for us even to imagine but if you just take a second and imagine if you've never eaten or had a drink through your mouth before so what sort of oral stimulation exercises would you provide yeah so it really varies but in general what we try to do is we try to just provide oral stimulation of any kind that the child will tolerate and accept so could that just That's be the thumb yeah absolutely finger. so for us it could be a gloved finger tapping on the lips again mm. we're singing we're communicating it's mm. a positive experience mm. we're tapping into that communication piece too sometimes it's a gentle massage if we see that a child has already developed an aversion we would automatically try to target towards that Right, so like if we see, for example, one of the most common ones is a hyperactive gag reflex. So kids that have tube feeds in place, um, don't like anything in or around the mouth. I've had patients before that would gag if I brush them on the cheek, mm. right? So then we work on building up that child's tolerance incrementally and over time. So okay. for this little kiddo, for example, some of our sessions looked like me briefly singing a song to him and we would have like a little um, tap and dance component where I would gently kind of like tap up his little arms right and then getting onto the neck and initially he'd gag as soon as I went beyond the neck onto the face so for a while that's where we stopped and okay. then we built it up and then it eventually got to the point where he would allow me to sort of do this little song and the little dance and I could tap the tip of his tongue and he wasn't gagging anymore so it was fantastic mm. and if you think about those really skills yeah mm. it was fantastic and it took time mm. this was over the course of probably four months okay um but it was incredible progress and it really supported him he still has a tube feed in place okay but it allowed him to have the skills to be able to also accept food through the mouth under the guidance of the medical team so it was great thank you just a couple more questions left sure <laughs> um so um, a mum's uh, emailed that she has a three and a half year old, okay. does not have a diagnosis yet, suspected perhaps autism. Okay. Um, he only has pureed uh, mm. foods um, and she's, sh she's <coughs> struggling with him um, being able to chew. So okay. what can she do to be able to support him to start chewing? Mm. Okay. Um, I'll take, <laughs> take this one. <laughs> um, 
So you said how, how old was he? Three and a half. Three and and he'll have anything that's pureed, but he okay. just doesn't want to chew. chew. Yeah, so is he being lazy or is it that he hasn't got the skills or is it a combination mm-hmm. of everything? Yeah, so basically there's a lot of developmental shifts that happen from when you're a baby and as you grow up and you know get older sure um and sometimes at these developmental shifts children can get stuck and in this example he's obviously gotten stuck on purees but it's very difficult to tell without an assessment whether it's a sensory thing or if it is um you know an oral motor skill deficit so that's something we would have to look for in the assessment Mm -hmm. um and then we would be able to you know go forward from there Mm -hmm. if it was a sensory thing it would be you know again things like food exploration trying to move on from the period food Mm -hmm. might start if it's a you know a very severe version might start just making small changes to the puree things like that Mm -hmm. but again creating those positive experiences around food and Re- and introducing new foods. If Definitely. it's an motor skills deficit, then yeah. you have to work on skills like chewing and tongue lateralization. H- how we- would you work on chewing? So we might bring in other yeah. approaches yeah. like yeah. Tools. tools. Exactly. So Mira's spoken a bit about that and how that kind of works on those kind of skills. Mm. Also things um, that you can work on is through the SOS approach, they talk about hard munchables. Yeah. So these are foods that are solid foods that are basically children can't take a bite of. Mm-hmm. And it's about them. So like a beef jerky or a carrot stick or something. Those foods that are really hard. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's basically letting them explore that in the mouth. So you might dip it in the puree and then, you know, they might put it in their mouth okay. and it from side to side, things mm. like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously under supervision because again sure Sure. um so it would definitely depend on what the assessment findings would tell us but that's yeah and and can you get children um you know who are not chewing either due to sensory difficulties Mm -hmm. or or motor deficits to chewing yeah definitely so it's a learned skill and it's something it's part of our you know typical development we eventually learn to chew and um, things like that so we can definitely help work on that and one thing I think is interesting is this is a common problem that we see with a lot of our kids with ASD is that that difficulty accepting the sensation of chewing Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. seen that I've seen this exact same issue many times before we don't like that feeling or we might not like the sound right Mm -hmm. that we get that we get from chewing into food and tearing into it that comes from the inside of our head like that's a exactly sensory experience if you're hypersensitive if you have a child that's hypersensitive especially to noise they might absolutely you know freak out when they hear themselves chewing or they're another person chewing absolutely and that's something too we would consider like in therapy with this kid i'd be curious to see for example, like if he would accept something like a yogurt stick or a cheese yeah. stick, something that's mm-hmm. not crunchy, yeah. doesn't give as much of that auditory feedback when you chew into it. Mm-hmm. Just or like example. from a total's point of view, thinking about the adjustability. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Just before, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so absolutely. before maybe trying these hard foods, looking at the adjustability, looking at what strength mm-hmm. yeah. um, of chewy tubes they can use. Because absolutely. that could be like the pre- yeah. The pre um, that early stage program. first, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So, how do people get in touch um, with you? What's the name of your web, um, your company? The Centre Dysphagia Centre. London Dysphagia Centre. Dysphagia Centre. So, um, yes. I will put a link um, 
with the uh, podcast that we'll uh, put out. And then um, people can, listeners can get in touch with you if they yes, have any please questions do. around. Please, please do. Dysphagia or Absolutely. feeding or eating difficulties. <coughs> but it's been great to have you all on. Yes. And, and one final note. Yeah, just sure. Say, please. To parents who have a child with dysphagia is that you're not alone. It's such a stressful experience, and there are people who, like us, and many other great people who are not us, um, who are here to support and help you. So just know that. Lovely. Well, thank you for coming. Thanks Thanks for coming. And, um, you know, just just from this conversation today, I feel like we could have, um, you know, separate podcasts, just thumb sucking, breastfeeding, (laughs) tongue tie, and sensory all over again. (laughs) Um, So it'd be great to have you on again. Thanks, girls. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye.